Good morning. I grew up in a foreign country. Some of you have uh, probably heard of it. It's called Utah. <clears throat> and I moved to Kentucky about a decade ago and uh, had a little bit of culture shock when I first came to Kentucky. And one of the things that was was so shocking to me about Kentucky was just how many churches there are. It's, it's just, it's, it, this is a state, I would imagine, like much of, of the Bible Belt, and I get we're in the mild south, but I, I, I just could not believe how many churches there are in Kentucky. I'm talking about Protestant churches. As you can imagine, that's not the case in Utah for reasons that you can probably guess. One of the things that my wife and I like to do as we drive around Kentucky or as we drive around the South is look at churches as we pass by their, their names and their, their property and just kind of by that information guess what those churches are like. Now you, you can, you can maybe tell something about a church from its name. So we were driving around Glasgow, Kentucky the other day in Barron County. And uh, there was this old dilapidated building that we drove by with a big sign on it that said, Strict, Particular, and Closed Baptist Church. And I told my wife, man, I bet they're warm and just really welcoming. But, you know, I appreciate it. I love it when churches put all of their theological convictions on their sign like that. But more often what you'll find... Uh, are, are churches that are really trying to, they're trying to tell you something with their name, right? They're, they're trying to, to plant a flag. They're trying to signal something to you as someone who might be driving by as to what the character of this church might be. And most churches don't opt for the strict, particular, enclosed route. They actually go for the, something, something a little more cheerful and maybe something even a little syrupy sweet like Friendship Baptist Church or Church of the Peaceful, or a church my wife and I saw the other day, Tranquility Church. Now, why, why, why would a church constitute itself with a name like Tranquility Church or Friendship Church or, 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 or something like that? And, and I think what's going on is we have become so accustomed to disunity We've become so accustomed to, to fracturing. We've become so accustomed to division that it's almost like these churches are, 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 are trying to put in their, in the very DNA, just by putting it in the name of their church, that this is a church that's going to be different. Right? This, is, this is a church that's, that's not going to have those types of negative experiences that you might be accustomed to. And yet we can't. At least I can't even read those names without remembering just how fraught with disunity we are. Just how fraught with disunity and division local churches can be. And the reason disunity is so common is because there are a thousand paths to disunity. The reason disunity is so common is because unity, true unity can't be engineered. It can't be manufactured. You can't create it. I can't create it. 
The pastors can't create it. Programs can't create it. Common interests can't create it. Nothing can create unity. Except the Spirit of God. True unity is a supernatural act of the Spirit of God. So if you're visiting Heritage this morning, first I just want, I want to welcome you and I want to say that I think you picked a good day to come. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because you know, we believe that all of the Bible is inspired by God. We believe that all of the Bible is God. We believe that all the Bible is profitable. But we also recognize that there are some passages in Scripture that, that are just a little closer to the heart of Christianity than other passages. There are some passages of Scripture that are, in some sense, Mount Everest within the mountain range of the Bible's topography. And this is one of those passages. And if you're a member of Heritage, I also just want to encourage you that, you know, I, even from 120 miles away, I, I sense the, the difficulty and the sadness that many of you are, are feeling this morning. Obviously not to the degree that you are feeling it, but I, but I sense it from you that you all are, are walking through tragedy tragedy and i I just want to commend you all that there's there's nothing better you could do for your soul right now than to sit and look at the incarnation of the son of god that's the best thing you could do so before we jump into this passage i just i just want to offer two words of warning two 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 admonitions about how to approach this passage, okay? Because some of us in this room cannot wait to dive into the first half of this passage. This passage represents everything that you love about the Bible. Paul's going to get in your face about a lot of stuff. There's a lot of rich, deep, invasive application. You can't wait for Paul to just get in your face with all these commands. It's going to get really practical, right? You want to sink your teeth into what Paul says about unity and humility and godliness and life and relationships and and community. But frankly, the latter half of this passage isn't all that exciting to you. The, The latter half of this passage just seems like a bit of a tacked-on illustration to get to the main point of personal humility. As if Paul is writing this and saying, humility, humility, that's what we need. I'm going to write about humility. What would be a good illustration of this? Me? No, that really doesn't work. Ah, Jesus. Okay, so we'll tack Jesus onto this. But others of us in this room are actually going to have the exact opposite problem. You can't wait for me to get to verse 5. You can't wait for me to jump into the second half of this passage. This passage represents everything that you love about the Bible's rich, deep, dense theology. You want to soak in all of the theological implications for what Paul is talking about in this passage. You want to unpack the the person of Christ and talk about the incarnation and the two wills of Christ and what does kenosis mean and what is the kenotic theory and how do we parse all this out? But... The first half of the passage is just kind of flat. 
the first half of the passage just just doesn't do anything for you. It's not landing on you in the way that Paul wants it to land on you. But friends, Paul's not talking about Christology in this passage because it's interesting. He's talking about Jesus in this passage because he's trying to keep his church from ripping apart. He's talking about Jesus in this passage because he's trying to keep the church from fracturing into different warring segments. So, so what I'm saying is this. If you walk away from this text this morning, brimming with resolve to prefer others and emotionally indifferent to the glory of the incarnation of the Son of God, then you've missed the point. And on the other side, if, if you walk away from this text just saturated with right theological affirmations about the incarnation, but you're no more likely to volunteer to change the next diaper in your house or to pick up that nursery shift that a friend needs covered, then you've missed the point too. In this passage, all of the theology is the application and all of the application is the theology. You can't have one without the other. Paul's aim in this passage and, and my aim in this sermon isn't that you would just desire humility and merely see Jesus as a great illustration or that you would know a lot about Jesus but not really be interested in humility. What Paul wants is that you be so overtaken by the character of Christ, so compelled by his love, so in awe of who he is and what he did from you, what he did for you, that, that from your deepest core, you look at him, the incarnate son of God, and say, yeah, I, I, I want to be like that. that. That's what I want to be like. So here's the main point of this passage. I, I do this a lot. Okay, So if, if I preach here more, you're going to get a lot of these main points. Here they are. A local church can only achieve... True unity and gladden the heart of Christ when each of its members believing the gospel imitates the humility of Jesus. Now, that was a long, right? It's got a lot of prepositions. Let me read it again. A local church can only achieve true unity and gladden the heart of Christ when each of its members Believing the gospel imitates the humility of Jesus. Now, let me unpack that with two points. Number one, mold your life around the unity of the church by humility. And number two, marvel at and mimic the humility of the Savior. So point number one, mold your life around the unity of the church by humility. The first four verses of this chapter are one sentence. And at the heart of this sentence is a verb, a single command. It might not be what you think it is. Complete my joy. I think what we see here in these first four verses is the heart of an apostle 
reflecting the heart of Jesus, indicating that the thing that makes his heart, and I think by implication, the heart of Jesus most glad in his church is unity and humility. And the way that Paul begins this charge for unity and humility in the church is crucial for understanding this passage and rightly applying it to ourselves. Because Paul doesn't begin this passage encouraging unity and humility in the Philippians by just barking commands at them. Be humble. Be unified. Go do. I'll be watching. He begins instead with these four statements about what God has already accomplished in the lives of the Philippians. Look at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy. Be unified, be humble. Now this, this verse kind of threw me for a loop when I was studying this passage because it's, it's a little confusing the first couple of times that you read it. What are all these things that Paul mentions? Why is he saying if? Right? Is he unsure as to whether the Philippians are actually participants in these things? Right? Is he, is he unsure as if the Philippians have actually experienced these things in, in, their own, in, in their own lives? But I don't think that's the case. I think the way that Paul is building his argument here, the way that these ifs function in the passage, is Paul is assuming the reality of these things. Okay, you could kind of read the passage this way. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, any comfort from love, and there is, any participation in the Spirit, and there is, then do these things. Now, what is Paul doing? Why, why is he mentioning all of these things? I think Paul feels compelled That before he gets to his central concern of promoting unity and humility in the Philippian church, before he starts saying, frankly, crazy things like do nothing from selfish ambition, he's reminding the Philippians of the fact that their ability to do what he's calling them to do is not rooted in their own character. It's not rooted in your character or my character. It's not rooted in their righteousness or your righteousness or my righteousness. It's rooted in the saving, redeeming acts of a triune God. You have received comfort, not from your circumstances, but from the love of the Father. You have received encouragement, not from your own righteousness, but from the righteousness that comes from union with Christ. You have partaken of the holiness of God's spirit. These things, God's saving acts in the gospel are the foundation which create the type of self-giving love that Paul is going to be commending in the verses that follow. So brothers and sisters, before you get to verse 3, before you get to these commands and the example of Jesus, you need verse 1. You cannot live without verse 1. Do you know what one of my first impulses is in reading one of these passages in Philippians 2? Despair. What's, what's the end game of Paul's commands? Do you notice where he goes with this? Have this mind in you, 
the same mind in Christ Jesus. Oh, thanks, Paul. Be like Jesus. Be like the person who never sinned in thought or in feeling or in action. That's discouraging. That's an impossible command. Enter the grace of the triune God. This way of life, this humble character that Paul is commending, brothers and sisters, this is something you can have. This is not that this is something that is for you imperfectly right in a stumbling, bumbling kind of way, but also in a very true, very real way. This is for you. This isn't one of those commands that only the extra super holy people once every 500 years get to obey. This is a way, a pattern of life that God promises he can produce in his people. Every single one of them. And the reason Paul's vision for unity and humility is attainable is verse 1. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have conspired from all eternity to redeem you and to conform you into the image of who? Jesus, verse 5, accomplished. Your ability to obey Paul's command and, and mimic the humility of Jesus isn't a function of your own righteousness and your own character, but it's a function of trusting the triune God whose encouragement and love and fellowship and comfort and mercy you already know is at work in your life. As my wife always says, you didn't get a bad Holy Spirit. He works and you didn't get a bad one. Brothers and sisters, since these things are true, since verse one is true of you, this life of unity and humility and love can be ours. So in light of this gospel rock bed that Paul lays, he moves on to verse two and he says, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. What does the saving grace of the Father and the Son and the Spirit create? Right When, when the mercy and the grace of the all-powerful triune God goes active... And starts doing things in the world. What does he do? You'd expect it to be something flashy and big and amazing and spectacular. Well, it is amazing and spectacular, but it's nothing flashy and big. When God's grace is active, it creates a community of broken, messed up people with different backgrounds, with different interests, from different races, with different finances and different levels of education who all think the same way and love the same things. Paul says the Philippians can fill up his cup of joy, and I think by implication, gladden the heart of Christ when they live out God's compassion among one another by being unified and by being one. Paul's language here expresses two things, unity of thought, being of the same mind, being of one mind, and unity of affection, 
having the same love, being in full accord. And brothers and sisters, don't underread this passage. Don't underread this passage. Don't think that the only thing Paul wants here is unity on doctrinal convictions. Those are essential, but that's not the only thing. Paul's going a, a level deeper than that. You can have a church where everybody believes the same things and nobody likes each other. What Paul means here is a deeper, richer unity that includes not just our thoughts, but our affections for Christ, for his mission, for one another, for the congregation. In fact, Paul uses this exact same language just two chapters later in chapter 4, verse 2, when he says, Encourage Euodia and Syntyche to get along, to agree, to think the same in the Lord. What Paul means here is a deeper, richer unity that includes not just what we say in confession together on a Sunday morning. It's the type of rubbing elbows, caring for one another, doing ministry, encouraging one another in truth unity that we see in Philippians 127. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, it's easy to get on board with that. Right. Unity is attractive for everybody. Everybody wants unity. No one, no one is, no one runs on a platform of championing disunity. But it's easy to hear verse two as that type of rather unassuming, vague encouragement toward church unity that doesn't have a lot of specificity behind it. Everyone wants unity. We just want unity on our own terms. We want the unity where everyone agrees with me. I'm all for unity. Now agree with me. Do what I say. But there's nothing vague about how Paul unpacks this in the verses that follow. Verses 3 and 4 are extraordinarily invasive and clear about how we achieve unity. You know, when people say that the Bible's not practical, I just think, what Bible are you reading? The Bible's too practical. This verse is so invasive. Oh, it's uncomfortable. Gets right into the details of my life. Do nothing, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition. I remember the day I got married, but my my brother gave the best man speech, not the one you know, the one you don't know. And uh, so I'm here, he's up there kind of giving the best man speech and he said he he said i have the secret to marriage tell you what it is do nothing do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves but what about me time? Do nothing from selfish 
ambition. First, Paul gives the negative. Don't act out of selfishness, self-interest, a desire to create more comforts and more power and more popularity. Don't pursue conceit. Or as the King James says, I think it's a better translation, vain glory, empty glory. What, I mean, what, what is it when you gain all the comforts and the praise of man? You achieve all your vocational goals. You get all of your own interests. Friends, it's empty glory. It's vapid. But then Paul gives the positive. Be humble, which doesn't just, it doesn't mean thinking lowly of yourself. It means not thinking of yourself at all. Do you, do you notice how he develops humility? He doesn't say, in humility, think of yourself as a really terrible person. He says, in humility, count the preferences and the significance of others more than yourself. And then he further defines that by saying, don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So in other words, the unity Paul commends in verse 2 that's built on the grace of God established in verse 1 doesn't just happen. It's not something that you can just kind of coast into in life. The unity described in verse 2 only comes when Christians self-consciously, intentionally, faithfully commit themselves to do nothing from selfish ambition, but instead prefer the interests of others. And that, Paul says, completes his joy. Now, if you're a parent, you intuitively understand what Paul is talking about. What is it that completes your joy as a parent? What is it that gives you the deepest sense of satisfaction in your children that fills up your cup of delight for your kid, for your kids? I'll tell you what it is for me. It's not their achievements. What gives me the deepest sense of satisfaction as a parent is not that my four year old learned to write his name. Or that, you know, he, he was able to conquer reading. Or that he was, you know, he learned some new thing in school today. I'm, I am thankful for those achievements. I'm, I'm happy when they come. But what makes my heart soar with delight is when I see Cyrus loving his brother. When I see him preferring his brother. When he gladly shares his toys. When he's not this wrecking ball of selfish ambitions. You know, one of the first questions I ask my wife every day when I get home from work is, how are the kids today? And I'm not asking for a list of achievements. I'm not asking for what, what they were able to accomplish that day. I want to know, did they love each other? Were, were, they, were they kind to one another? Did they share with one another? That's what Paul's talking about here. That's why his heart soars with delight. Why the heart of Jesus is gladdened with his church when he sees humility, when he sees unity. Now, friends, the hardest part about applying this passage is that it applies to everything, right? The possibilities for application here are simply endless, endless, right? You get, you get home from work, you're exhausted, lay down on the couch, sun runs up to you, daddy, daddy, let's play, let's play, let's play. You just want to lay there. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Right? Maybe, maybe you're maybe you're preparing a sermon, and your wife says, "Hey, hey, babe, can you come? I'm really busy. Can you come change this diaper? I don't want to change that diaper. I'm preparing a sermon. 
I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm going to go change a diaper. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Friends, this principle applies in all of life, in every relationship, whether to a spouse or a child or parent. But what Paul is talking about here specifically is a congregation. What Paul is talking about here specifically is how this works out in the context of a local church. This type of looking out for the interests of others is incubated primarily in this context of a congregation. So friends, let me just apply this to us as a congregation and I'm going to pick some low hanging fruit here. Brothers and sisters, one of the most concrete, tangible and frankly easy ways you can fulfill this command is to serve in the nursery or in children's ministry. Now, I don't know. I, I have no idea what the, the rates of kind of service and, and people volunteering are at Heritage Baptist Church. I know in, in my own church, it's it's a problem and, and this message needs to be heard. So if that's the case uh, for for this congregation, then then let this encourage you uh, for more service. If you're doing great in that area, then let it just encourage you to keep on keeping on. But the application is the same. Look out for the interests of parents in this church so that they can hear God's word by unburdening them of the responsibilities of parenting for an hour or two. Look out for the interests of the other nursery workers and servants in this church by sharing the load of work so that more of your brothers and sisters get to sit under the preaching of God's word with greater frequency. Look out for the interests of the children you serve who while away from their parents, get to be loved and cared for and taught and told the gospel. And through their infancy, get to witness God's love put on a display in a church of people who are committed to bearing one another's burdens, even in the most simple ways, like in children's uh, ministries and in nursery. You know, even nursery can be a cause of division. There are, there are a million ways for disunity to disrupt in church. I think one of the most beautiful applications of this passage that I've ever seen was a couple of years ago. Well, it was about a decade ago. I was a member of a church where disunity started to crop up over the issue of children in the service. As you have half the congregation, they're sold out on family integration. We've got to keep the kids here in the service. We're going to teach them to listen to good preaching, to, to pray, to sing songs, to revere God's word. And you have the other half of the congregation saying, no, 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 we want, we want to put the kids in the nursery. We don't want to have any distractions in here. We want to make sure that everybody can give undivided attention to worship and to preaching. Division. And friends, it's not that one group was right and one group was wrong and one group loved Jesus and the other group didn't love Jesus. Both groups of people are holding their position out of reverence for God's word. And it's division. And in the midst of the heat and the fracture that started to emerge in that church, the pastors just began preaching on this text, opening it up to the congregation. They encouraged those sitting with their children to look to the interests of the other church members, to do whatever they could so that their brothers and sisters could hear God's word without distraction. And then they spoke to the members who didn't have children or who put their children in nursery and ask them to put the interests of their brothers and sisters above their own. 
and try to encourage and support those who were trying to train their children to sit under God's word from an early age. And friends, God's spirit unified that congregation. And the following Sundays, that congregation wasn't characterized by division, but by love and by service and humility. So the parents with, with kids who wanted to keep their kids in the service, they were showing up early, trying to scout out the seats that would be you know, the least distracting if, if something were to crop up. We're telling their kids, you know, we, we want to we we make sure we're not a distraction. We want to love our brothers and sisters. Then you have the, the members who would put their kids in nursery or who, or who didn't have kids telling those families, come sit by me. I'll help you with your children. Let's share this load together. You want to teach them to sit in the service? Let's share this. Let's do this together. I want to unburden you of some of those responsibilities. And brothers and sisters, that's a mature congregation. One where real disagreement over issues actually produces greater service in the church. You know, and it's easy to kind of scoff at that with a bit of cynicism and say, yeah, I mean, that that's never going to happen. That's impossible. Of course it's impossible. That's why God loves doing it. God's not into doing possible things. He's into doing impossible things. Point number two. Marvel at and mimic the humility of the Savior. In verse five, Paul pivots the discussion away from describing humility to just showing you what humility looks like. Right? When Paul wants to put an accurate view of humility in your mind, he doesn't tell himself, all right, I gotta, I gotta flesh this out over, over 40 chapters. For him, I, the, the idea of humility, it, it's not encapsulated in a philosophy, but in a person. He wants you to understand humility, so he puts Jesus in front of you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The greatest act of humility of all time. The eternal son of God. Paul says he's, he's the one who's in the very form of God, which basically means that he is the one who shares in God's essence. He is the one who is in himself divine. The one who is entirely self-sufficient. The one with all wisdom and all power. The one who has no needs because he has no deficiencies. The one who spoke in the Old Testament and said things like this. If I were hungry... Psalm 50:12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. You're not on God's call list. The only one, the only one in the universe who has the right. I want you to hear that word. The right to demand that angels in heaven worship him without ceasing every day for all eternity and he happily refused them paul says he did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped he laid aside all of the privileges and all of the rights that he had as the eternal god and he entered into human history to join his creation paul says he emptied himself what does that mean 
Does it, does it mean that he ceased to be God? That he, that he gave up all of, all of his divine attributes? That he ceased to be the son of God in the incarnation? No, Paul, Paul explains what he means by the very next phrase. He emptied himself by taking. You see that? He emptied himself by taking. Subtraction by addition. He emptied himself by taking on a human nature and becoming a servant. So when Paul says that the Son of God emptied himself, he doesn't mean that the Son became less than what he was, but that he became more than what he was because, because he adds to himself a human nature. Friends, let that sink in. That the Son of God became a man. You know, my fear with this sermon is that you just, you hear that and you walk away, you know, ho-hum. Friends, do you see Jesus? Do you see him sitting on Mary's lap, learning the ABCs or the Olive Baton Gimmels? You see Jesus needing his parents to feed him and to clothe him? See Jesus at Joseph's workbench learning how to make, created the universe. He's learning how to make tables and chairs. You see him in the Gospels, hungry, thirsty, tired, sitting on a well in Samaria. And all through the Gospels, the apostles are arguing about their rights and their ambitions and who gets to sit on Jesus' right hand on his left. And you remember James and John send their mom to go lobby in front of Jesus to get them more power in the kingdom. And where's Jesus in all of this? On the floor, scraping sand and dung and other stuff out of Peter's toes. Friends, that's the Son of God. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I said that the incarnation was the ultimate act of humility. Take it back. Right, wrong again. This is the ultimate act of humility. That the Son of God doesn't just become a man and serve and suffer. He dies. He dies a gruesome, shameful, painful death unjustly. This is why Paul says, even death on a cross. And you know, we've, we've lost the sense of horror that should come with that. We've lost the sense of horror that comes with a cross. Because we've got crosses on our walls and we've got crosses everywhere. And, you know, we make all sorts of designs out of crosses. But friends, in the first century, having a cross on your wall would be like hanging up a, a picture of, of the gas chambers of Auschwitz. It'd be like hanging up a picture of, of the KKK lynching, lynching somebody. That's what Jesus comes to do. That's how far aside he lays selfish ambition and puts your interests above his own. So friends, how does this apply to us as a congregation? Let me, let me give you two final thoughts before we conclude. Number one. Brothers and sisters, don't walk out of this building today merely with a new resolve 
to pursue the interests of others. You need that. You need that. That's part of it. You need resolve and discipline. But if that's all you have, I said merely, if if that's all you have, I mean, that's going to last till next Tuesday, right? How your New Year's resolution is doing. Leave with resolve to know more fully, to love more intimately, the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Humility and love and preferring others thrive and your selfish ambition dies when you see him. And that type of communion and love and affection for Christ, it's not something, it's the frustration of preaching. It's not something I can do as a preacher. It's the frustration of being a Christian. It's not something you can produce as a Christian. It only comes by the daily feeding on passages like Philippians 2. By orbiting your life around the local congregation and the grace that's given to you by brothers and sisters in this congregation. It only comes by pressing into those ordinary disciplines of grace and then pleading with the Lord to open your eyes to see the Christ who's right there standing in front of you in Scripture. You know, friends, if 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 uh, you if you don't if you're here this morning, you don't identify as a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're just kind of exploring Christianity. I just want to submit to you. You have to reckon with this. Right? Christianity isn't like a philosophical idea that you can bat back and forth. It's a it's a historical fact. Something happened in history that you have to reckon with. Jesus Christ, the son of God became a man and you can't ignore that he became a man so that you could have fellowship with god and friends if that doesn't compel you to come to christ if that doesn't cause you to consider christianity then what will this isn't a philosophical idea this is about what god did in history sending his son to get you to save you to rescue you application number two embraced by faith in jesus and by looking at him, that loving people, serving people, and putting the interests of others before your own means being inconvenienced. You know, what is it about selfish ambition that's easy? And what is it about putting the interests of others above your own that's so hard? It's because serving is always, 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 always inconvenient. You don't get to serve on your terms. That's the very definition of serving. Serving means serving on someone else's terms. So put away selfish ambition and the empty glory rooted in personal conflict. Right? What, what's going to keep you from that, right, is the Star Wars Star Destroyer tractor beam pull of convenience. Convenience is going to pull you away from that. And it's going to be your greatest challenge to living out this text. So at nine o'clock at night, when your wife tells you, ah, we don't have eggs. You gotta get eggs. Our kids only eat eggs in the morning. And you're thinking, I gotta put these cranky kids in the car. Why didn't she get eggs earlier in the day? She was at the store. Now I gotta get eggs. Why did the Lord give me children that only eat eggs in the morning? You're cranky. You don't wanna do this. And in, in that moment, right, it's always in that moment where your neighbor that you've tra- been trying to share the gospel with, 
comes up and out of the blue, as you're strapping your two-year-old into his car seat, asks you this spiritual question that just flings the doors wide open to a gospel conversation. And you know what your heart says in that moment? Or at least mine? I don't, I don't want to do this right now. This is really inconvenient. I, I, I got to do this another day. I'm, I'm, I'm in a rush. Paul says, prefer his interests above your own the way Jesus did for you. All right, well, maybe you've got this new resolve in the new year that you're going you're gonna to be more hospitable to your church members. You're going to have them over more. You're, you're going to get to know people that you don't know. Then you walk into church on a Sunday morning and all of these faces of people that you don't know. Oh, this is really outside of my comfort zone. I, I mean, I'm, I just met this guy five minutes ago. I'm not going to invite him over to my house. This, oh, this is, this is too inconvenient. This is much too inconvenient. And Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition the way Jesus did for you. All right, or maybe you're single and you're living with some roommates. You hear this sermon, you go home with some new resolve that you're going you're gonna to serve your roommates. You're going to love them. You're going to start doing stuff for them. You're going to start hanging out with them more. And then you realize that they don't have any of the interests that you do. They don't like any of the TV shows that you like. They don't have any of the hobbies that you do. And frankly, they have conversations that just are boring and you don't like. And on top of that, they don't appreciate how you're trying to serve them. And what does your heart say? Man, I'm done with this. This is inconvenient. And what does Paul say? Prefer their interests. Do nothing for the empty glory of the praise of man, the way Jesus did for you. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, commend to you, that you cannot love your brothers and sisters in this church and negotiate away the inconveniences that they will pose on you. Where does this idea come from in Philippians 2? Is this from the Bible? It comes from this passage. There is nothing convenient about the incarnation. There is nothing convenient about the Son of God coming to earth. When Jesus comes to earth to redeem us, he's not bargaining with the Father for more convenience. He leaves his divine privileges. He leaves his angelic worship. He enters into human frailty. He suffers. He's mistreated. He dies. There's nothing convenient about the way Jesus saved you. And when you embrace by faith how Jesus bore your burdens and was inconvenienced because of his love for you, you will begin to be willing to be inconvenienced to bear the burdens of other people. Brothers and sisters, sometimes those burdens will be more more than an inconvenience. It will be much more than an inconvenience. It will be suffering. It will be pain. It will be trying circumstances. So why would we ever do that? And friends, it's because the Son of God suffered for us. Because the Son of God died for, even died on a cross to save us, to serve us. See, the reason you can love people like this is because Jesus loved you like this. You don't have to fear inconveniences or suffering because Jesus has already taken away the sting of inconvenience and suffering. That's why Paul can say these crazy things in Philippians 1, like Philippians 129. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In Christ, suffering and service and negative circumstances aren't just things to be avoided. They're gifts. It has been granted to you from God. 
is they make you more like the one who suffered and died for you. Brothers, in this passage, Jesus isn't just the example of humility. He's the source of humility. You can trust his commands. You can trust his plans. You can trust the circumstances he puts you in. You can walk in those circumstances and serve people in those circumstances and walk in obedience even when it entails suffering and danger and inconvenience because he has secured by his own humility everything that you need for all of eternity. See, you don't have to claim your rights. You can have Jesus' rights. Righteous before God. You don't have to hold on to your selfish ambition. You know why? Because Jesus has already secured for you a future greater than any future you could have created for yourself with your puny ambitions. You don't have to fear suffering. Jesus already took on all of this suffering that we deserve. The sting is gone. So friends, I just want to commend you by the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. We don't understand it as we ought, and we don't rejoice in it as we ought. But would you, by your spirit, press these truths deep into our hearts so that we would value more the unity of this local church, so that we would love more the glory of Jesus Christ, and so that we would, in humility, serve one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.